You're more than welcome to. Dudley Atkinson, also. Hello, everyone. We're starting. We're starting. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Kevin Middlebrook. I'm professor of Latin American politics at the Institute of the Americas, University College London. It's my great pleasure to host this webinar on Mexico's fourth transformation and President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. Our goal is really to offer some interim judgments and contribute to the ongoing public debate about contemporary Mexico and President Lopez Obrador, or AMLO's first two years in office. Uh, before introducing our guest speakers, I'd like to remind everyone in our virtual audience to please keep your microphones and cameras muted during the presenter's presentations. Uh, that will help protect bandwidth, and we hope we'll make the event go smoothly in technological terms. Uh, we're really pleased to have with us today uh, two distinguished uh, analysts of Mexico. Uh, Alberto Olvera, a research professor at the Universidad Veracruzana in Mexico, and Lawrence Whitehead, a senior research fellow at Nuffield College, University of Oxford. And both of them are internationally known for their research and writing on different aspects of Mexican politics, and no doubt we will cover uh, quite a lot of terrain uh, today. Uh, following their presentations and some brief comments of my own, We'll have ample opportunity for a question and answer about AMLO and the fourth transformation. Alberto, please welcome and, and the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Kevin. I appreciate this invitation. It's an honor to share this uh, event with you, with Lawrence, uh, which I, who I consider my professor in, in many ways, and with Kevin, a long time friend. Uh, in order to save unnecessary suffering to the audience, I will read some lines I wrote. My English will be bad anyway, but at least uh, it will have some coherence, I, I hope so. So let me start immediately in order to save time. Uh, first of all, we have to understand the, that the overwhelming victory of Lopes Obrador and his recently created personal party the Movimiento de Regeneración Nacional, or Morena, in the elections of July 2018, was a result of a plebiscitarian election, which expressed the massive popular rejection of the inequality, exclusion, violence, and corruption that characterized the regime of the transition to democracy. Lopez Obrador's merit was to symbolically embody both the opposition to the rapacious neoliberalism and the moral criticism of the generalized corruption of the political class that ruled the country in the first two decades of the 21st century. Despite his overwhelming victory, Lopez Obrador faces severe limits to carry out his project. Most of them are internal to his coalition and to the project itself. Indeed, Morena is not a political party and the ideas that guide the fourth transformation are basically out outdated. The peculiar form of populism that Lopez Obrador promotes is also out of touch with a complex and rebellious society. The historical conditions are the worst imaginable a pandemic, a global economic crisis, a global dispute for the hegemony. However, in Mexico, there is a profound political transformation in the making, and we have to make sense of it. First, we have to understand that the transition to democracy created, created a fragile democratic regime, but the state remained basically the same, a fragmented, weak, corporatist, particularistic state. Democracy led to real electoral competition and to a certain degree of liberalization of the public space, but it never changed the deep legal, political, and cultural structures of the old regime. There was a pluralization of clientelism, a democratization of corruption, the growth of the bureaucratic apparatus, but under the same rules of the past. The entire process of democratization was therefore paradoxical. Moreover, the transition to democracy was carried side by side with the neoliberal transformation 
and this simultaneity led ultimately to a general crisis of the political regime. Indeed, the fragmentation of power, the irrelevance of or plain and existence of the rule of law, the generalized violence, the increasing dysfunctionality of the clientelistic and corporatist organizations led to an unavoidable outcome, the simultaneity of a crisis of legitimacy, a crisis of representation, and a crisis of stateness, this is of the state capacities. We cannot talk properly of an economic crisis, but in fact, the neoliberal project was basically a failure in terms of economic development. This general crisis meant the rupture of the legitimacy and efficacy of the methods and forms of relationship between citizens, political intermediaries, and state institutions created along a very uh, conservative transition to democracy. The triumph of Obrador meant the rebirth of a project that remained in a residual condition for three decades, the nationalist developmentalist. It returned with a populist person, personalist style that raised new risks to the precarious Mexican democracy. As in all populist projects, there is a leader that brings together an heterogeneous constituency, creates a common ground by means of symbols and demands, defines an enemy to be defeated and brings a sense of mission to the new government. López Obrador maintains that his government constitutes the fourth transformation in the history of Mexico after the independence, the reform, and the revolution. But like most populism, populisms, López Obrador is ambiguous about uh, regarding the meaning of his project. In this case, it is not a new beginning, but a recovery. AMLO thinks that the error of the neoliberal pre was to betray the nationalist and etatist legacy of the original PRI's project, which synthesized the mission of the Mexican Revolution. So, the historical task now is to recover the sovereignty of the state against all the facto powers in order to guide the development of the country and to deliver social justice. In a sense, we are facing a kind of nostalgic populism, a desire to go back to an imagined utopic past. But in, in another sense, López Obrador is just intending to correct the excesses and failures of the neoliberal project. We will see very soon. In practice, in its first two years, the new government has been destroying the political foundations of the neoliberal regime, but it has not resolved the crisis of representation and opened the doors to its electoral victory. In the absence of autonomous social movements and of a strong civil society, López Obrador has had enough political room to replace some old practices of domination with others that are equally old, such as the cult of his personality and the reconstruction of absolute presidentialism. Therefore, the partial destruction of the past corporatist and clientelistic forms of popular control, and to a certain degree, the renegotiation of their relationships with national entrepreneurs, has not led to the development of more democratic state-society relations, but to the symbolic construction of a direct relationship between the leader and the people. Such relation is based on populist rhetoric, a polarizing discourse, an overwhelming presence of the president in the media and in the territory, and a slow but constant undermining of the division of powers. The speed of this change has been facilitated by the virtual vanishing of the opposition. The triumph of López Obrador and his Morena party occurred in all regions of the country, in all age groups, and in all socioeconomic strata. López Obrador won the presidential election in 31 of the 32 states, in 82% of the polls, in 92% of the electoral districts, and in 80% of the municipalities. Morena won five of the nine governorships and 13 of the 24 state capitals that were in dispute, and the majority of deputies in 19 out of 32 local or state congresses. This congressional power has allowed the president to obtain the final validation of the constitutional reforms that he has managed to get approved in both houses of Congress. 
López Obrador created an electoral coalition that included openly opportunistic parties such as the Green Party, El Partido Verde, which has, which has sold its support to all governments since 1994. The Partido del Trabajo, the Workers' Party, exchanged melange former Maoist activists and former uh, pre-PAN and um, PRD politicians. And the Social Encounter Party, or Partido Encuentro Social, a group of ultra-conservative evangelical pastors who decided to ally with AMLO, with López Obrador, when it became clear that he would be the winning candidate. This coalition obtained only 38% of the votes for congressional seats, which shows that the citizen, citizenship voted for López Obrador, who got 52% of the votes for president, but not for the parties that supported him. However, skillfully using the rules that they pre-created to grant itself with artificial majorities, the coalition obtained 52% of the seats in both chambers. This enormous parliamentary overrepresentation has allowed López Obrador to secure the votes to pass laws and budgets. Moreover, by making ad hoc alliances with some priests, deputies, and senators, he has even achieved qualified majorities that have allowed him to reform the Constitution, appoint three ministers of the Supreme Court, as well as change the composition of the regulatory agencies and of the Electoral Institute. The governors of the opposition parties, which had great power in the past, are now controlled because Morena holds the majority in 21 of the local congresses. Besides, fiscal centralism allows the federal government to administer almost 90% of the public budget. More than 30% of the public resources must be transferred to the states by law, but the federal government's ability to manage the pace and form of its delivery gives it a great discretionary power. So, López Obrador has started his government in an ideal condition for the president which is a political vacuum, not only because of the defeat of the previously ruling parties, which are delegitimized, but also because of the absence of both a mobilized grassroots civil society and a pro-democratic elite civil society with political force. NGOs and think tanks have been very important in the immediate past, but López Obrador has managed to displace them from the political scene accusing them of being an expression of elite economic groups like most of the media against which he maintains a constant confrontation. Now, let's think about the problems of these projects. And I would like to start by the absence of the true political party that supports the government. López Obrador built an electoral coalition that had neither ideological coherence, no real points in common, except the figure of the leader. The original Morena's foundational group was completely overwhelmed by the urgency of turning the party into a national political machine in just two years. The massive transfer of professional politicians from, from other parties to Morena led to a structural internal division in the party. On the other hand, the improvisation of candidacies led to the rise of a political class with scarce political and technical capacities. Paradoxically, the very weakness of the new ruling class facilitates the centralization of command in the leader president. But at the same time, the radical political emptiness of Morena creates both a problem of identity and one of effective leadership. Morena has no program nor ideology except those vague directions given by López Obrador in his daily press conferences. Moreover, given that López Obrador does not, does not want to be the effective leader of Morena, the variegated tribes and political cliques that combine under the Morena umbrella keep fighting amongst themselves for posts and influence and for the control of the enormous amounts of public subsidies the party receives from the National Electoral Institute. Morena, as a party, contradicts the moral message that López Obrador postulates. Far from representing the emergence of a new political class, Morena is rather the synthesis of the old. 
This is what differentiates Morena out from the mass of Evo Morales, which really was a new party and helped to create a new political class, and from the Brazilian PT, the PT, which also formed a new political class over the years. Both parties had their origin and powerful social movements. Morena is mostly the recycling of a part of the old political class in the context of radical separation from social movements. Morena is rather an electoral apparatus similar to that of Kirchner's person, but without its grassroots organizational strength. The main difference between the past and the present lies in the personal figure of President López Obrador, who embodies a very different way of governing. It is the man who represents the change, not the institutions, not the project, not the party. This image reinforces the symbolic and political centrality of the president and focuses popular hopes on him. This strategy is compatible with the political culture derived from the, from the old regime. Absolute presidentialism is in the DNA of the PRI. Now, how López Obrador is centralized in power, even without having a political, a real political party at his service? López Obrador's main policy to centralize power has been the control of the governor, governors. He has done this by creating a new position in the federal government, the federal delegates of social programs in the states, better known as superdelegates, who concentrate the management of federal public spending. The power of these officials is enormous because on average, 85% of the resources of the states and, mun and municipalities come from federal transfers, that is, from money collected by the federal government. For this reason, the superdelegates have become parallel governors, since they not only control federal public spending in the states, but also assume a political role as coordinators of security policies and participates in decisions about the deployment of the National Guard, uh, the new uh, federal police. Besides, there are 285 regional delegates whose territory of responsibility coincides almost exactly with the 300 federal electoral districts. These officials manage the distribution of subsidies, take care of demands of conflicts, and also participate in regional security meetings. The superdelegate and the regional delegates have at, at their service 20,000 servants of the nations, servidores de la nación, officials in charge of collecting the data of people who will receive the new social programs aimed at young people, the elderly and peasants. They also deliver the subsidies directly to the deserving people. Obviously, the political territorial role of the servidores de la nación is strategic for the government. Unfortunately, nobody knows the exact number and the names of the people that benefit from the new social programs, as the government has denied all the petitions to make public the information. The elimination of the previous social policy based on conditional and target, targeted cash transfers and its replacement by non-conditional but targeted cash transfers gives López Obrador a personalized symbolic power insofar as the servants of the nation deliver the money explaining that it comes directly from the very president. Now, there is a second way of centralizing power. And given that I'm using a lot of time, I'm trying to uh, reduce my discourse right now. I will uh, say that one of the democratization features of the new government has been the rejection of the old clientelistic organizations that served the PRI for many years. But this uh, rejection of all kind of kinds of intermediary bodies uh, is affecting as well all types of civil society organizations, including human rights, feminist and ecological NGOs. Civil society has become a bad name insofar as it designates a politically independent social realm. 
All kinds of autonomous organizations are considered suspicious of collaboration with the old regime. Of course, this policy does not, uh, does not eliminate the existence of social networks, social movements, and all kinds of collectivities. The political attacks against civil society hurts the most. The organizations that investigated the old regime's corrupt practices denounced the violation of human rights and fought against the multiple forms of extractive capitalism. In a sense, López Obrador is indebted to them because the publicization of corruption, violence, and abuse was the main factor in the process of delegitimation of the neoliberal regime. In the, in the meantime, the uncivil society, this is, the criminal groups, the mafia-style informal associations of taxi owners, street vendors, garbage collectors, money lenders, phantom business, etc., survive in the shadows waiting for better times. Given that there is currently no significant popular mobilization, the new government has not required to build specific mechanisms for the control of social movements. The government can resort to direct clientelism without mediation, since there is no threat to massive social mobilization. However, the government does not know how to deal with the emerging feminist movement, which does not operate on the logic and moral grammars of clientelism, nor can it dialogue with the indigenous movement, especially with the Zapatista Army of National Liberation, which has its own political autonomy and project, and neither can it be in good terms with the environmental movement, which resists the pharaonic mega-projects promoted by the government. The colectivos de familiares de víctimas de desaparición forzada, the collectives uh, of victims, uh, felt betrayed by the lack of attention to their plight. The president promised justice, but the reform of the justice institutions institutions is not in his priorities. Lopez Obrador's weak flank is in the left-wing civil society. For those social actors, the nationalist developmentalist project means nothing but a return to the past. I would like to mention also the economic difficulties, the fiscal crisis, uh, the impossibility to attend the problem of violence. Uh, as a matter of fact, Violence has risen in, the, in these two years of government, but I'm taking too much time. So let me see, let me say only this. In political terms, the problem of the new regime is that it has no party and is rejecting uh, alliances with uh, existing social movements and creating a direct relationship leader masses, which is not stable and is not a guarantee of an authentic social base for the new government. On the other hand, the decision to carry out the mega projects proper of a developmental state instead of instituting a policy for attending the sanitary emergence has led to a real collapse of the institutions of, uh, of medicine and social medicine in Mexico. On the other hand, given that there is no anti-cyclical uh, economic policy, the crisis will be more profound than in other countries. So this is not good for the health of the project. I think that the, uh, the direction that this process is taking is quite quite dangerous because it can lead uh, on the one hand to the reinforcement of an populist authoritarian government or and on the other to a populist temporary government that could open the door to an authentic democratization but for this to happen it will be necessary for society to mobilize and to organize autonomously in order to prevent the consolidation of authoritarianism. Thank you very much. Thank you very, very much, Alberto. You've laid a lot of things before us on what is a very complex and far-ranging subject. Uh, Lawrence, please. Yes, well, Alberto said many important things and opened the way to a whole range of questions, which I think 
need to be followed up one by one and no doubt we should therefore make sure there's plenty of time for point by point discussion. I will try to be brief and I will try to pick on five key items in Alberto's presentation and which I think shape a lot of the discussion about Mexico. Um, they're very broad and general, I won't go into the details. The first is the idea of a profound transformation, the Cuarta Transformación. The second is the idea of populism. Uh, the third is nostalgia for the past. The fourth is personalism. And the fifth is return to statism. Those are, that's, you might say, from a Financial Times editorial point of view, that's the bill of accusation against AMLO. And most of those points, uh, what, although Alberto has has been quite careful and nuanced in a lot of his presentations, he, his presentation will basically be fitted under those five headings of accusation against what is going on. I noticed that, for example, he referred to a peculiar form of of, of populism, and he right at the end suggested that there were two alternative outcomes rather than a guaranteed uh, route to consolidated authoritarianism. There was the possibility of the reopening of um, channels of democratization. So he himself uh, is uh, actually um, not quite so categorical as those uh, big labels would suggest, but I want to um, press each of those labels a little bit. So if we take, first of all, Cuarta Transformación, well, it took at least it took at least a, a decade of extreme violence and upheaval for Mexico to even achieve its independence. Uh, it took uh, at least a decade. Well, the reformer uh, under Juarez led to the French invasion and a terrible protracted war. Again, the, it was a transformation which was extremely violent and very protracted. And of course, the Mexican Revolution of 1910 resulted in the death of something like uh, more than 10% of the population and a violent upheaval that, was, that lasted for a decade or more. So it seems a bit odd and a bit uh, overambitious to me for uh, AMLO to be claiming that what he is going to do is produce a fourth transformation of the same scale and importance as these three preceding ones. I think it would be more plausible to make comparisons perhaps with the Cardinus Sexenio he might aspire to, or even the Echeverria Sexenio of the 1970s, which would involve going back to the past. But notice then I'm talking about a six-year project, not a decade-long total transformation, but a six-year presidency uh, within a framework in which, I mean, from the very beginning, I've asked all my critics of Lopez Obrador, do you believe he will still be the president in 2025? And on the whole, people say, no, he's going to be the president from 2018 to 2024. And that's long enough for us. Oh, yes, sexennials are rather a long time and an awful lot can happen <clears throat> in a sexennial. But they have a certain logic to them. And the crucial logic to the sexenio is you come in, you sweep aside all the uncompleted and failed projects of your predecessor. So you try to claim all the, pro, all the um, you recruit a, a, a new team of people. You try to claim all the uh, hopes for the future. Uh, the previous sexenio failed, but I'm now the embodiment of the hopes for the future. And you have six years then to show whether you can do that. And certainly since uh, Salinas, and I think possibly even before, sexenios have been characterized by being two, two period episodes. There's the first three years in which you have more freedom to carry out your ambitions and show what you can do and to disrupt and demoralize uh, your opponents. But then the second three years, actually, well, uh, 
people are starting to think this is going to come to an end, there's going to be a successor. Uh, this in turn will be judged. Uh, somebody will come along and will say, yes, you did some things, but I'm going to sweep, sweep you aside in turn. And by the way, in the second half of each sexenio, you have to cope with the problem of the midterm elections. So I think a lot of what's going on at present is AMLO probably going into overdrive for fear that he might not emerge as strong in the midterm elections of June 2021 as he emerged in uh, July uh, uh, 2018. And he's making great efforts and it's an open question whether those efforts will be productive or not. But the logic of the sexenio as opposed to the logic of the uh, Quarta Transformacion would be there's going to be a second uh, round to this in which his room for manoeuvre and his time horizons are shortening and indeed the people who he relies on and works through become more and more interested in differentiating themselves and competing to succeed him. So unless you think that, that the, the consolidation of authoritarianism in Mexico involves turning AMLO into a multi-sexennial uh, personalist ruler. Uh, I think we have to, and personally I doubt that, I think we have to uh, frame this in terms of a rather t limited time frame and um, the need to get some results that are the trademark and the achievements of the particular administration in question before the time runs out on that administration. So that's on profound transformation. Then on populism, I mean, populism is an extremely uh, wide and popular uh, phrase these days. Many of the things that uh, Alberto was saying reminded me of could have been said about Donald Trump and some of them could have been said about Boris Johnson. Um, but um, I would stress that populism comes in several different forms. And one important form of populism, if we think certainly of Echeverria, for example, is economic populism. Characteristic of economic populism is I'm in charge of the budget. Uh, I can intimidate the central bank. I can manipulate and frighten the business community and so on. And as a result of that, I can go for broke in expanding the economy. And we know that economic populism of that kind in Mexico, both in 1970 to 76 and in 76 to 82, did indeed go for broke and did indeed result in a breakage. And indeed, Salinas also ended in a breakage. The characteristic cycle of the sexenio was when the president's power fades at the end, the, the overuse and the abuse of economic uh, levers uh, results in an economic crisis, which means you move from being very powerful to being very weak and dependent. Now, if we apply, apply that aspect of populism, economic populism, to López Obrador, what we see is actually, despite all the rhetoric against neoliberalism and so on, um, and, and Alberto did concede that, did, did recognize this, uh, AMLO is not an Echeverria by any means at all. He's going, even in conditions where most economists even quite conservative economists would say you need to undertake uh, 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 deficit spending. You need to um, be willing uh, to uh, loosen the monetary uh, uh, spigots. Uh, you need to be um, uh, in some form or other capturing the, the economic surplus. Um, he has not been doing that. He has been uh, pursuing a policy of extraordinary austerity. And you might have thought Echeverria started off with austerity and then reacted against it because his six years were going to run out and he couldn't afford to carry on with it. You might have thought that after two years, Lopez Obrador would also be reacting against austerity. But that is not the case if you look at any rate at the budget for 2021. So it will be very interesting to see whether he can break the tradition of a weaker position in the midterm elections 
while at the same time insisting in extremely adverse economic circumstances on being economically orthodox, not economically populist. Now, there are other aspects of populism which apply uh, better to him, but before I turn to those, um, uh, the, 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 there's the accusation that no, of nostalgia. He wants to go back to the old ways. Now, I think here it's quite important to look at the difference between Lopez Obrador's policies inside Mexico and Lopez Obrador's uh, administration's relationship with the rest of the world. Above all, let's look at the relationship with the United States. Uh, it is not nostalgia to do everything you can to renegotiate NAFTA, making concessions to the United States in order to keep it afloat with the implication, actually, that your basic long run economic legacy will be to reinforce the integration of the Mexican industrial economy into the North American uh, industrial economy and to uh, reinforce the existence of a North American economic bloc, which is pitted against the Asian rising industrial interests. That's not nostalgia. That was not uh, Echeverria. That was not uh, the policy of uh, the economic policy. Uh, you notice I'm stressing here economic strategy and economic policy rather more than uh, Alberto did, because I think that's where um, the corrective to these terms uh, might be most appropriate. But now let me come finally to a few points about the politics. The personalism. Undoubtedly, people describe um, uh, him as uh, uh, Lopez Obrador as displaying uh, messianic uh, characteristics of appealing directly to uh, the people, just as, for example, Cardenas built his support by going around all the backwaters of uh, Mexico uh, in extremely difficult traveling conditions, showing that he was present for all sorts of areas of Mexico that had been neglected. That was the technique that Lopez Obrador did to convert himself from being um, the, Mex the, the mayor of Mexico City or the figure from Tabasco to being a nationwide uh, close to the people uh, uh, representative. And the morning conferences, which take up a remarkable amount of his time, I mean, the, uh, it must be um, something like 25% uh, of the president's working time has to be devoted to that form of communication. He also loses time on very simple forms of travel and all the rest of it. Uh, so insofar as he's a personalist, uh, he hasn't got the leeway, really, to exert all the different levers of personal direct control over all the variables that he would need uh, to um, be fully dominant uh, across the political spectrum. Which is why I think, even though I agree that the superdelegados are important and that the governors are intimidated and so on, you can see him, for example, going around in the last few months in his his uh, morning conferences, which he holds sometimes in state capitals. There he is with the state governor side by side. And some of those state governors have been quite effective, both in uh, extracting benefits from him because he's there on their stamping ground and he has to explain why the metro in Guadalajara hasn't been built or whatever it is, or um, indeed even in terms of uh, uh, upstaging him in personal uh, uh, positioning, um, uh, in showing themselves uh, in dissent. Of course, as you know, there are 10 uh, state governors who are in the Alianza Federalista who are, uh, in a sense, uh, just a bit like, you know, um, mayors in, 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 the, in England. They're standing up against the overwhelming uh, 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 manifestations of strength from the prime minister. Uh, and in the course of that, they're winning a certain degree of 
political uh, credibility locally. So I think there are a number of things about the personalism that we could uh, discuss. Finally, statism. Um, the, and again, Alberto recognized this, but I want to highlight it. The Mexican state is in a very weak position. Take, for example, the question of the rule of law. If you want to punish anybody for any malfeasance and you want a proper inquiry and a proper legal process about it, you have to have them prosecuted in the United States. The courts and the legal processes in the United in Mexico are not credible, are not just, and are in fact not even um, uh, going after the most obvious and spectacular um, uh, uh, abusers of state power. So statism with a, a very weak le le uh, 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 legal system, statism also with a very reduced budget with the national budget, federal budget, with very limited uh, leverage and everything that Lopez Obrador has been doing in terms of setting limits on uh, salaries for public employees, for example, uh, and on um, dismantling the fideicomisos, which happened today, uh, etc., has the effect of weakening the state apparatus further. And that's the instrument through which he would have to be a statist. Now, it's true that um, that uh, he, he is an alliance for the time being, at any rate, with Manuel Bartlett, who is a statist in the sense that he sees himself as the, um, uh, the mafia boss of the electricity sector. And uh, he has no intention of uh, allowing any of the surplus in that um, uh, state enterprise to be captured by uh, those who do not have his approval. Um, so that's a form of statism, if you like, but it's an extremely parasitic. It's basically more like state capture than statism. And of course, I don't need to stress the extreme gravity, as Alberto mentioned, of the organized crime challenge. I mean, if this is statism, what do you make of the fact that uh, the, uh, the, C, the, the cartel Jalisco Nueva Generación can, in the center of Mexico City, almost succeed in assassinating the head of the Mexico City uh, police force. And almost certainly was doing that as part of an inter-cartel uh, rivalry rather than uh, uh, anything else. And um, finally, then on top of all that comes COVID. Well, uh, if you're a statist, um, the state of the, of the health service would be one of the things that you would need to um, uh, uh, organize through uh, the public sector. Uh, and of course, uh, watching the pathetic spectacle, even today I was watching the uh, Lopez Gatel, the health minister in the Mañanera, trying to talk his way out of the fact that none of his charts and none of his uh, indications of uh, health planning and control uh, are exercising any purchase over uh, that, the reality of that tremendous pandemic. Um, Lopez Obrador gambled heavily on Trump winning the presidency. He's gambled heavily on a number of other doubtful propositions. At present, he's still popular, although his party is much less popular than him. But I'm not at all sure that there's going to be a quite a transformation or even going to be uh, the completion of a sexenio, which uh, is regarded as a uh, uh, as a transformative um, uh, administration. Thank you, Lawrence. Uh, you have again given us a lot to uh, think about. I'd like to focus my own remarks very briefly on the politics of AMLO and the fourth transformation. And over the past two years, many observers have been somewhat surprised by the political course that AMLO has set. Uh, not so much by his populist style per se, but by his focused and persistent attacks on Mexico's institutions of political accountability, uh, ranging from the Supreme Court to non-governmental organizations, uh, to the mainstream media, 
to the National Electoral Institute, INE, and, and so forth. I'm not so sure they should have been all that surprised. Uh, after all, AMLO was socialized under the left populist Luis Echeverria, who was president between 1970 and 1976, and he came of political age in Mexico's traditions of revolutionary nationalism and political legitimacy by results rather than by process or procedure uh, were fully intact. AMLO taps into those deep currents in Mexican political culture, what Alberto in another context has referred to as nostalgic populism. Uh, even though he may envision himself as a 21st century Benito Juarez, what he carries really is the DNA of the old Institutional Revolutionary Party, or PRI, uh, and with the apparent goal of recreating uh, the PRI's hegemony in Morena form, with all of the limits and caveats that Alberto identifies. I think two currents in AMLO's record uh, really illustrate this point. Uh, the first, as both Alberto and Lawrence have noted, is his single-minded effort to centralize political authority and concentrate discretionary power in the president, or more specifically, in the hands of the president. This rolls back against the most consequential and successful changes produced by Mexico's democratization experience over the past two decades. But to my mind, it goes to the heart of what post-revolutionary authoritarianism in Mexico was all about. Uh, one key mechanism that AMLO has repeatedly used uh, are popular referenda. They almost always generate claimed public support for what AMLO wants to do personally. And of course, one of the much discussed early examples of this was his cancellation of the construction projects or uh, construction contracts uh, at considerable public expense for the New Mexico City International Airport. AMLO's political message at the time, which was clearly understood, especially by the private sector, was aquí mando yo, I'm now in control. Uh, in his first two years, AMLO has quite systematically questioned and undercut the authority of institutions that might constrain executive power. The Supreme Court, the INE, uh, many decentralized agencies, and so forth. His weapon has been the budget, justifying quite radical budgetary cuts on the grounds that so-called Republican austerity is necessary in a country marked by great social inequality and extreme poverty. But the threat of repeated budgetary cuts has been enough to make the heads of many institutions act much more cautiously and withhold criticism of AMLA and his agenda. Second, AMLO has consistently promoted a bipolar vision of contemporary politics. Uh, either people or groups are for me or for him and for the fourth transformation, or against him and against the 4T. That too, I think, hark backs to the early decades of the Mexican, the early decades after the Mexican Revolution of 1910 to 1920, when political forces were either for or against revolution. That was the original and explicit justification for Plutarco Elias Calles pulling almost all political forces into the fledgling National Revolutionary Party, or the predecessor of the PRI. And it is what AMLO would like to promote for Morena. Uh, two examples here, I think, are quite illustrative. Uh, the first, uh, and I think Alberto made brief reference to this, was AMLO's surprising and politically unnecessary attacks on the anti-feminicide women's protests in February and March of this year. And the second example would be his recent push to investigate all of his neoliberal presidential predecessors for corruption, abuse of authority, and even their actions once they left, left office. Let me expand just a bit on this second gambit. The September legislative initiative that AMLA proposed called for organizing a popular referendum on whether to investigate all his predecessors, whether from the PRI or the National Action Party, the PAN, going back to Carlos Salinas de Gortari in 1988. These are all the presidents who, according to AMLO, 
are responsible for the horrors of neoliberalism in Mexico. Each article of the original initiative addressed the alleged failures and crimes of an individual president. Uh, for example, it noted that under Salinas, the number of Forbes list billionaires in Mexico jumped from two to 24. Uh, Salinas' successor, uh, Ernesto Cedillo, was responsible for the government-financed Fobaproa bailout of the Mexican private sector and the losses they had suffered during the 1994-95 financial crisis, something that AMLO roundly condemned uh, at the time. And for Vicente Fox, uh, the quite accurate charge in the initiative was that he had maneuvered hard to defeat AMLO in his first presidential race in 2006. Indeed, the initiative actually quoted Fox himself as later saying that he had tried to, quote unquote, load the dice against AMLO and, and so forth. In undertaking this initiative, AMLO is, of course, confronting the entrenched Mexican tradition that former presidents are de facto, de facto exempt uh, after from, from investigation. We may also be reneging on what was credibly reported in June 2018 as AMLO's private deal within President Peña Nieto, that in exchange for Peña Nieto not interfering in any way in the final stages of the presidential election campaign, that AMLO would exempt any future corruption investigation uh, or would avoid any future corruption investigation of both Peña Nieto and ex-PEMEX director Emilio Lozoya. By, by asking for popular endorsement to investigate all his predecessors going back to 1988, is AMLO really willing to throw all the plates into the air and see where they might fall? Or is he simply seeking political cover to pursue Peña Nieto and the members of his notoriously corrupt government? One conjecture is that the timing of the referendum to coincide with the 2021 midterm elections is simply designed to defend Morena against predictable electoral losses at the midterm. However, that goal may have been undercut somewhat by the Supreme Court, which approved the referendum that radically altered the wording of the question, eliminating all reference to ex-presidents, their individual names, what they did during and after leaving office, and so forth. It's now quite an innocuous referendum question, uh, which by July 2021, many voters may not recall or really see the importance or relevance of. Just to conclude, as many analysts have noted, AMLO's ability to pursue these initiatives rests on a fundamental political reality, and that is the current weakness of all the opposition parties. The underlying logic of much of what he is doing is simply to keep his political rivals, all of them, weak and divided. And so far, at least, that seems to be working. And I'll stop on that note. And with Alberto and Lawrence, open the floor for discussion from any of our uh, virtual audience.